All right, why don't you go ahead and grab a Bible there that's close to you. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. But uh, take your copy of God's Word and find your place in the New Testament book of Acts. Chapter 1 is where we're going to be in just a few minutes. Acts chapter 1. So go ahead and turn there. We're continuing on with this series called The Story. We've been walking through God's Word over the year, over this past year together. And now we find our place in the incredibly exciting, thrilling book of Acts where a group of uh, 120 or so believers that really had, had sold out to what we just sang about this morning, that Jesus is alive, Jesus is everything, Jesus is better, uh, you see through the book of Acts literally turned the world upside down. So we're going to look at that for just a few minutes this morning, but I want to start with a a quote that's going to kind of set the stage for where we're headed and then give you a practical current illustration that's been going around in my head a little bit going into the book of Acts. But a man named William James, an American philosopher, made this statement uh, several years ago. And here's what it is. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. He said this, The great use of a life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. The great use of a life is to invest or spend it in something greater than itself so it outlasts itself. In other words, every one of you have this urge, this yearning, this desire within you to be a part of something that matters, that's bigger than you are. We all have that. Ecclesiastes says God has placed eternity in our heart. We have an awareness of God. We have an awareness of things that are bigger than us. We want to give our lives ultimately to something that matters and that's bigger than we are. Now, I knew I was going to be reading that quote today. I had that in my mind, and I knew we were going to be in Acts chapter 1 today. I've known that for several weeks And maybe I, like you, a lot of you, I woke up on Saturday morning and turned the news on and was shocked, just like most of you, to see what happened in Paris, France over the past couple days. And I don't know how you listen to the news or how you watch the news, but I hope you listen to the news and you watch the news through a biblical worldview and try to make sense of all that, what's going on, and what does Scripture say about that, and how do you make sense that something so heinous and brutal could happen in a city like Paris, France. So I've been wrestling with that for a couple days, and a story came out of that that Jennifer and I were riding back in the car yesterday from a UT football game, and I heard, I heard something that just triggered my mind, that one of the perpetrators, one of the men that carried out those attacks in Paris that you saw and you heard about was actually a Frenchman. He was from France. He had been born and raised in France. He had grown up in France and somehow had had gotten away from France and ended up in areas of the Middle East and been, as the news calls it, radicalized. And then had such a worldview shift that he went back to his own nation and carried out and was part of those brutal attacks that have now killed, I don't even know the death count now, over 150, something like that. So I'm thinking in my mind, what in the world happened? in the mind and heart of that person that could come back and do that to his own countrymen. Now, I don't know all the answers, and I'm going to hypothesize something, and it's going to send us down into the book of Acts, and that's why I've been wrestling with this in my head. If you keep up with history whatsoever and know anything about history, you know that the nation of France for about the last century has declared themselves to be a secular nation. 
What that means is there will be no talk of God. There's no reality of God. There's nothing bigger than ourselves. There's nothing beyond ourselves. We ultimately live for ourselves. It's a secular nation. They've been that way for a century. Let me tell you something. The human soul can't bear that. Because the human soul created in the image of God knows intrinsically, the book of Ecclesiastes says, that there's eternity, that there's a God, that there's creator, there's something beyond ourselves. We need and desire to live for a purpose, right? You do, I do. So you see it in epidemic now in nations like France that men and women are giving themselves to things like ISIS to be part of a radical Islamic militant terrorist organization that's built on terror, built on murder, built on wickedness because, now listen to this, this is my hypothesis, okay, that men and women would rather give their lives to something that savage, that murderous, that wicked than to give their lives to nothing at all. So what in the world does that have to do with the book of Acts? Well, what you find in the book of Acts is a group of men and women, 120 of them, who have determined to give their lives to something eternally significant called the kingdom of God. And they invest everything that's in them and everything they have. They are sold out that this man named Jesus is who he said he was. And they are convinced because they saw him rise from the dead and he presented himself alive. And they give their lives to something bigger and greater than they are. And even in the book of Acts chapter 17 it says this small group of people turned the world upside down. All of us want to give our lives to something that outlasts us. This group of people here in the book of Acts that we're going to look at, again, a small group of 120. In a sense, when you move beyond the Gospels and the story of Christ, in a sense, the work of Christ is over, the work of redemption, but in the same sense, the work of Jesus is just beginning. And what you have in the book of Acts is now the work of Christ of drawing the world to himself and salvation, being carried out and continuing through his people, through the resurrection power that we sang about this morning, the Spirit of God living within his people, taking the message of the gospel that God loves, God redeems, God saves to the end of the earth and turning the world upside down. You'll be reading that this week in your reading if you're following along in the story reading plan. Within six months, the church in Acts, had grown to over 100,000 believers. Within a few years, the gospel had spread throughout the region here from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria. Within 40 years from the opening of the book of Acts, the message of Jesus had reached every corner of the known world. Acts 17, 6, I quoted this earlier, says, These men and women literally turned the world upside down. Today, there are over 2 billion professing Christians. Every one of them, including us, can trace our faith back to this small band of believers known as the early church. So when you take all that in and you think about all that... I'm intrigued to be able to look at the book of Acts, the first few verses, and say, what was it? What was going on in the lives of these early believers, this early church, that made them such a mighty force for the world to be reckoned with? And that's what we're going to do this morning. So I'm going to read the first eight verses or so of Acts chapter 1, and we'll come back and talk about four realities we see of the early church and apply these things to our lives this morning. All right? So follow along with me. Acts chapter 1. The Bible says this. 
Now, Luke is the author. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke is kind of like part one. Acts is kind of like part two. He says this, The first account I composed, referring back to the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus. Theophilus was an individual, a man. Theo means God. Philus loved. This man loved God. Luke is writing this account of Acts to Theophilus. And he's writing about, particularly in Luke, about Jesus, all that Jesus began to do and all that Jesus began to teach. The first thing Luke mentions in the book of Acts is what he wrote in the Gospel of Luke. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 2. Until the day he was taken up to heaven, that's Jesus, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3. To these... This early band of believers, he also presented himself alive. Love that statement. After his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom. For 40 days from the day Jesus rose from the dead to the day he ascended into heaven, for 40 days he was appearing to his disciples, he was appearing to the apostles, and he was teaching them about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem. Now, everything in them wanted to leave Jerusalem because there were a lot of people in Jerusalem that wanted them dead. (laughs) Jesus says, hang on, wait in Jerusalem. There's a purpose. There's a reason. But wait for what the Father has promised you, which he said, you heard of me. Verse 5, John baptized with water, and I said, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, saying, soon something's going to happen, guys. You're going to receive power from the very Spirit of God. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Jesus, I mean, we've seen it, saw you die, we've saw you raised from the dead. Is now the time, Messiah, you're finally going to establish your kingdom? We're going to get rid of all the Romans and the Roman rule and the oppression we've been under. Is now the day the kingdom will be literally established? Jesus says, verse 7, It is not for you to know the time, season, epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8. But you, you, me, followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, you will receive power. Something's coming. Something's coming. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit of God has come upon you. Why? Because you will be my witnesses. You will give testimony both in Jerusalem, where you are, Judea, the outlying regions, Samaria, the place where the people are that you don't even like, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth that absolutely scares you to death. He says to these early disciples. Now we'll stop right there. Something in these verses and some other verses we're going to look at just intrigues me to look at this group of people, this early church, and know that God used this group of people to turn the world upside down. What's going on in the lives of these early believers? I'm going to show you four things really quick this morning. Number one, the first thing we see about this group of people is they had a life-altering message that they had to share. Now you say, where do you see that from? Well, let me go back to verse 1 really quickly. Verse 1 says this. Luke writing, he says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. I'll stop right there. What does that mean? 
What that means, in effect, is that all that happens and everything that goes on through the life of the church, through the believers, from Acts 1 all the way through Acts 28 that covered a span of 40 or 50 years, all that goes on was because of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Acts begins with a reference back to the Gospel of Luke so as to say, the reason we're doing what we're doing The motivation behind where we're going, what is burning within us is a life-altering, life-changing message about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is what motivated to lay down their lives for something greater than they were. Now, what does that mean for you and me? What that practically means for you and me, when we look at the book of Acts, it's a book of action, it's a book of God moving through the lives of His people, is that the foundation for you and mine, for us literally living on mission and living as a witness that we're called to be, is a growing personal understanding and deep, thriving relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts begins with a reminder to say, you know, Jesus, all that he did, all that he taught, and it is a reminder for you and me. Now watch, this is so huge. These early disciples were not, they were not motivated merely because somebody came up behind them and said, hey, you better go live on witness, you better go live on mission, you better go tell somebody about Jesus. As if driving somebody to mission ever drives you into mission. They were led and compelled to give their lives for something greater. Why? Because they adored Jesus Christ. They adored the person of Jesus Christ. And Luke, who is going to write about all of these things in the book of Acts, nails down an anchor at the beginning of the book to say, I'm making reference back to the gospel of Luke so that generations that would come later remember what motivated, what drove, what inclined, what the heart behind the disciples were they adored the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Well, it practically means some things for you and me. It means that those that are called to witness, those that are called to live on mission, and by the way, that's me and that's you and that's every person that names the name of Christ, we have that message. We have the Spirit living within us. When we, and I'm speaking to me, when we live our lives and we are not telling about Christ, we are sharing the gospel with no one, we are not making disciples, we're living for ourselves, it is an obedience problem, but even more than that, it's a love problem. It's a love problem. <laughs> I used this illustration of the early service, and I didn't check with my wife before I did it, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Here we go, ready? Listen, I I don't travel a whole lot, but from time to time I travel and I find myself in conversations and sometimes I'm in conversations with females that I just met or whatever the case is. I really make it a, a, a practice of mine that if I meet a female or a group of females, I'm not in a conversation very long that I don't mention my wife. <laughs> uh, guys, you might want to write that down. Now, you don't need to mention my wife, mention your own wife. You mentioned my wife, we need to have a talk. But anyway, now why? Because I read a marriage book and the marriage book said, you better go tell people about your wife so I'm following some rule. No, 
Because God has graced me with a very healthy relationship with a woman that I love dearly. When you poke and prod or you're around me any amount of time, it, it just comes out. So when we who have been redeemed and born again and set apart and called and bought by the person of King Jesus, when we know him and when we're growing in that relationship with him, when you press us or squeeze us, guess what ought to come out? Jesus ought to come out. And the message of the gospel that transformed my life and your life. That's the foundation of the book of Acts. Luke says, I'm telling you about this first account I wrote of all that Jesus began to do and all that he began to teach, all that Jesus was. There is a rhythm throughout Scripture. Watch this. A rhythm throughout the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Witness always follows worship. Worship who he is and flowing out of that is a witness that I've got to tell. I've got to tell. Here's a group of people who firsthand walked with Jesus. They knew Jesus. Now they had a written account in the Gospel of Luke. They had seen him rise from the dead. They worshiped. They knew him. And man, their lives were never the, chain, the same. You poke them, you squeeze them wherever they are. Guess what comes out? The Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, man, that'd be true of me and you. The call is to know him. The call is to walk with Him. And as you walk intimately with Him, the burning in your heart is, I've got to tell. I want you to know. I care about that person who's going to spend eternity in hell. I care about the unreached people groups. I care about this mission. Jesus, because you cared about the mission. And Jesus, I love you and I worship you and I'm going to, call, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. It's an overflow of that dynamic, growing relationship with King Jesus. Quickly. Charles Spurgeon made a quote. He said this. Spurgeon was known for being very blunt. If you've ever read anything about Charles Spurgeon, he said this. Go ahead and put that quote up. He says, we might preach till our tongue rotted, till we exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit uses the word to convert that soul. So it is blessed that we eat into the very heart of the Bible. Dig into Scripture. That's what he's saying here. Dig into Scripture. Some of us have a very shallow view of who Jesus is because you have a shallow understanding of God's Word. He says, dig into Scripture. Eat the very heart of the Bible until at last... Go to the next slide. You come to talk in Scripture language and your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord so that your blood is bibline and the very essence of the Bible is flowing out of you. Man, as you eat the pages of the Word of God, as you eat, as the, as the Spirit of God speaks to you through His Word, and you digest and you dig into this revelation of God, you know Him more and more and more and more. And what comes out of you is Christ and His Word and His message, and you're living as a witness to the ends of the earth. That's the foundation. That's where it all starts. So they had this message that had changed them, this message of Christ. They were transformed by this message of Christ. Secondly, let me give you a second reality. Second reality was this. Not only did they have a life-altering message, they had a living Lord. Verse 3, I love this. Acts 1-3 says this. To these, these early believers, he, Jesus, also presented himself alive. Now stop right there. If you mark in your Bible with chalk, crayon, pen, whatever you write with, it doesn't matter. Circle that word alive. That is a huge verse. 
a huge statement. These disciples who had seen his life and they had walked with Jesus, they saw him die, they saw him go in the grave, they saw him appear to them alive, risen from the dead. It says they appeared to he appeared to them alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs and appeared to them over a period of 40 days speaking things concerning the kingdom of God. For a period of about 40 days Jesus appeared to his disciples. One time his disciples were in an upper room and the door was locked. That didn't stop Jesus. He just kind of walked through the wall evidently and appeared right there by his disciples to show them I'm alive. Doubting Thomas said, man, I'm never going to believe unless I see the scars and the wound in your side. You know, John, the Gospel of John says Thomas was able to put his finger in the wounds of Jesus. He, he presented himself alive. 1 Corinthians 15 says he presented himself to over 500 people at one time, over and over and over again. The Lord Jesus Christ presented himself to his disciples as not one who was dead, but one who was alive. Therefore... The disciples of the early church were willing to die for the message about a a living Savior, not a dead one. And And when I watch, and it's convicting to me, and it's challenging to me, and I watch the news, and I watch what's going on in the world, and militants who are willing to blow themselves up and give their lives in the name of a prophet whose tomb is still very much present on the other side of the planet, we have a living Savior to die for and to give our lives for. Jesus Christ is living. And it changes the way I look at life. I have something to live for. You have something to live for. The early church had something to live for. Do not believe the lie of secularization that says we need no God, we need nothing beyond ourselves, we will simply live for ourselves. The human soul cannot endure that. The human soul must have something to live for. And I'll tell you what I'm living for. It's something eternal and it's a living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what these early believers were living for. So they had a life-altering message. They have a living Lord. And then they had a very clear purpose. Jesus did not mix words. Verse 6 in Acts 1. I'll hurriedly go through some of this. says, So when they had come together, they were meeting there together, the early church. And the Bible says when they had come together, they were asking him. Now this is kind of funny. They were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? Now, I try to read between the lines a little bit there. It's like Peter and James and John and all the disciples, they, they all had their different agenda. Say, Lord, I don't, know what, I don't know what you're planning on doing over the next few months, but is it now that you're going to establish the literal kingdom? And you're going to get rid of the Romans, and we're going to get rid of and we're going to rule and reign in the earth. It's now the time. It's very easy for disciples of Christ to wrap their hearts and their minds around their own agenda. And Jesus said, no. (laughs) That's not my plan. That's not what's next. That's not what's going on. In fact, he said, verse 7, it's not even for you to know the times or the epochs that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Leave that up to me and the plan of the Father. But as for you... In the meantime, from now until I return, from now until I return, here's what you're to be about, verse 8. But you, the word you there is plural in East Tennessee, it's youans, it's you all, all you all, right? 
It's not singular. It's not just you by yourself. It's you all. Corporate, the body. That's important. We'll come back to that. It's not for you. I'm sorry, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're going to receive a power that's supernatural. Why? You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. Now listen, many of you all in this room memorized that verse when you were a little kid. You had it up on your refrigerator and you've known it your whole life. Would you let this verse sink into your soul, maybe afresh like you've never heard it before? Jesus Christ said, here's what you're to be about. In light of who I am. In light of the fact I've redeemed, restored, I live in you. I live in you by my spirit. I've given you life. Here's what I'm calling you to. Go be my witness. Go tell. Go share. Go speak what is within you and it will come out of you. The truth of the gospel seasoned by the word of the living God. Speak the message of Christ. What is a witness? A witness is very simply someone who speaks the truth about what they've seen or heard. The word here is literally the word martyrion. We get the word martyr from it. Meaning many and at times will be called to lay down their lives for what they're sharing and what they believe in. And that was the case in many of these in the early church. They laid down their life. What opposition they faced didn't matter. I've got to tell. I've got to tell. Jesus said you are my witnesses. In a sense of you and you alone, there is no plan B. Jesus chose, he chose people, us, his disciples, to be the evangelistic strategy for the kingdom of God. Y'all get that? Jesus Christ chose you and me, his disciples, his followers, as the evangelistic strategy for the church. There's no plan B. There's no angelic, you know, army coming to proclaim. I know there's different things in Revelation, but right now, specifically, the evangelistic tool is you and me, us. You are my witnesses. He also said, you shall be, or you are. In other words, he doesn't say this. Hey, Peter, John, I've redeemed you, I've bought you, I live inside of you, I've given you eternal life. Uh, Would you consider being my witness? How about it, man? It's not what he says. He says, I've bought you, I've redeemed you, I've saved you, I've called you, I've set you apart. You are my witness. Everyone who names the name of Christ is a witness. The question is, what kind of witness are we? He says, you are my witnesses. (laughs) I shared this in early service, I'll go ahead and share it now I wasn't sure I'd have time or not but so this was driven home to me in an incredible way I don't know how many years ago it was we were in the country of Laos and we were serving with uh, 15 or 20 Laotian pastors country of Laos is a communist country you name the name of Christ they're going to take you your family to jail and they'll leave you there as long as necessary so some of these guys I'm sitting around a circle with them I'm in awe that I even get to sit with them and literally, I look around, some of these guys are missing fingers, missing hands. Their, their face has been beaten. They've suffered because of the witness of Christ. Why? Because they adored Jesus. And so I ask them, I, 
we just tell me about these different things that motivated them and, and what it was like to suffer and the persecution they endured. And I, and I asked them about this. And then I asked them this question. I said, what would you say? And this was all through a translator. I said, what would you guys say to Americans who know Christ but they never share their faith? And here's exactly what happened. We're sitting in a circle. These guys are sitting around. Goes through the translator and every one of these guys to a man, they go like this. And for 10 to 15 seconds, they said nothing. You know why? It took me about 10 or 15 seconds to realize they could not even conceive of being a follower of Christ and not telling people about it. They couldn't conceive it. These guys had laid down their lives. They had lost limbs and family members. They had laid it all on the line because Jesus is alive and they adore Jesus. And for me to say about us as Americans, me included, who sometimes won't even whatever walk across the street, as the old adage goes, they couldn't even conceive of that. Jesus says, you are my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem. Start right here. Judea. You may be sent out further, like church planning that we are involved in as a church. You may be sent to Samaria. You may go to Samaria. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. God may ask you to go to somebody you don't even like or someone that you think is lesser than you. And by the way, at the foot of the cross, the gospel says everyone's the same in Christ. It may be that God calls you to the ends of the earth, but it starts right here where you are. You say, I don't even know how to start, Pastor Mike. I mean, this is so overwhelming for me. We as a church are doing everything we can to equip one another through our life groups and through study groups to give you the tools to be able to speak. Uh, It may be that you start like many of us started over a year ago. There's a little card. I don't have one of these cards up here, but there's a little card that we pass out. Here it is. A little card we pass out, and you can pick it out some of these in the four if you don't have one. just has three blanks on it. You can say, Lord, put three names of people on my mind that I serve with, work with, live life with, that don't know Christ, and I'm going to begin to pray for them. That's a good starting place. And then pray that you're able to engage into their lives with the gospel, build relationships with them, and that God would take you to the point that you're able to share boldly the message of Christ and call for a response. That's what we teach here. That's what we're trying to live here. That's what Jesus is calling us to do here. Last point really quick. So they had, they had a message that they had to share. They had a living Lord that changed everything. They had, a, they had a passion or a clear purpose given to them by Jesus. And then fourthly, last one is this. They, these early believers, they had a unifying, a unifying passion. I'm going to read on in Acts. I'm going to read just a few verses beginning in verse 12. So Jesus promises them the Holy Spirit. and It's it's almost a comical scene. You can read 9 through 11 on your own. But Jesus says, okay, guys, you're going to go to the ends of the earth and you're going to be my witnesses and all that. And then he floats away. (laughs) And they're just kind of left there going, you know, really? And then they run from the Mount of Olives right outside Jerusalem where this took place down into the city. And it picks up there in verse 12 and says, And they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. That's not very far. And when they entered the city, they went up to the upper room, and that's where they were staying. And then it lists some of the disciples that were there. It grew to a group of over 120, verse 14. Here's where I want to camp out. These all, all of them, 
all of the followers were involved. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And they, listen, this wasn't some high saintly prayer of, oh, my Father, Lord. This was, Lord, you've called us to do the impossible. And man, they were fervent in prayer because their eyes was on this impossible mission that Jesus had given them. They all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The group of 120 were there. And they were praying fervently. Watch this. They were a unified group of people. (laughs) So when you read this, a, a truth that just stood out to me was this. You know, for our church and churches in our area, if you've grown up in church life any amount of time, you know that sometimes churches can just begin to squabble about silly things. They can't. I can't. This early church, they weren't, they weren't squabbling about much. Now, later on, they began to argue about widows not being served. And that's on up in Acts 6, and they took care of that. But here, here's what you see with these early. They, with one mind... It's one soul, one passion. We're embracing the purpose for which Jesus had given them, and it was the most unifying step for this or any church to be unified around the mission of God. And when they took very seriously what God had called them to do, and they were looking outward, and this mission God had given them, they were simply not arguing about things that didn't matter. Y'all know we live in the Bible Belt and we live around. We're we're hearing about churches squabbling all the time and churches splitting and all that. Man, let's be a church that's unified and gives our lives to something that matters and the things that don't matter just begin to fade away. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of and that's the kind of church God's building here by His grace. So they embraced the purpose and they were unified. Then Acts 1.8, just really quickly, it says they all... Or verse 14 says they all with one mind. Here's the last point I want to make to you. The Great Commission, the call to make disciples, the call to be a witness was not given to an individual. It was given to a corporate body. It was given to us collectively, not, okay, you on your own. I need you and you need me. I need the strength and the encouragement of the body. If we're going to live on mission, that's why Hebrews 10 says we need to encourage and sharpen and spur one another on to love and good deeds because we live in a world that is coming against us and it will cause our fire and the zeal within us to be Right? I need you and I need my brothers and sisters speaking into my life. I need the church. That's one of the reasons we here at Tri-Cities, it's not a perfect system. It's the best we have right now. It's really strong and good and healthy. But we believe in something called life groups. And life groups are designed to give you a platform where you can connect with other believers to talk through truth, to come in and spur one another on, love one another, so that we can live on mission together. And I want you to see this in living color really quick. I'm going to ask... two couples to come down that are part of a life group here in our church. Uh, Ask... uh, this couple to come on, these two couples to come on down front. The Lineberries and the Chapmans, if you guys will come on down here for a second. Hey, bro. And this is a part of a life group, not an entire life group, but a life group in living color right here in front of you. And a life group that's doing everything they can to live on mission. And I wanted you to hear from them 
Chad, is, Chad and Becker are the leaders of this life group. I want you to hear from them. What does it mean? What does it look like in our life group to encourage each other and to live on mission so you could hear from them? So, Chad, what does that look like for your life group to be living on mission together? We, uh, we, we've kind of embraced and we really enjoy the life group format of the four questions. So if you're in a life group or if you've been to a, a life group introduction session, you've probably heard a little bit about the four questions. But each week we try to talk through the pieces of what can we celebrate with you? How can we pray for you? How can we serve you? Uh, what is God teaching you in your life? And most importantly for us is, have you been able to be part of the Great Commission over this last week? And so uh, this group of nine families coming together and being able to share the people that are in their circle of influence, the people that are lost or maybe have walked away from the path, and just how they can inspire them, reach out to them, share the gospel with them, um, and be able to talk through that. But then most importantly as a group, to pray for those individuals. And so of the hour and a half, two hours that we spend together each week, you know, the most powerful portion of that is when we've called out the names of the lost and the names of the hurting around us and been able to pray for them as a group. And so just as a group of saints to lift up those names and um, absolutely the, the highlight of our time each week. Awesome. And not only do we like to love and support each other in this life group, but we like to, um, it's important for us to show the love of Christ to our community as a whole. And how we do that is we serve through Keystone and Samaritan's Purse, Operation Christmas Child. Uh, we've packed boxes for them as well. And we truly believe that we are saved to serve and we are blessed to be a blessing to others. Yeah, awesome. Jonathan, you and Joanna are fairly new, I think, to the area and to our church. And you're part of this life group. So how has it helped you personally to really live on mission to be a part of this life group? Well, it's really huge. Uh, Joanna works with um, elementary school children. I work with college students. And so for us, you know, being in a life group is, is just so encouraging because we know we're working with next generation. And, uh, you know, we, we love the fact that um, when we first moved here a year ago, Joanna and I were involved with a life group in our last church, and we knew immediately that we needed to get plugged into one here. And uh, just like Chad and Rebecca were saying, you know, the, the prayers... Um, gathering together and just, you know, even talking about Mike's sermons, um, how we can apply those to our lives, how we can live on mission, and how we can take this out, uh, you know, to future generations and to everyone that we're encountering each and every day. Uh, we, we just can't do it alone. It, it's incredible um, how much, I said in the first service, you know, how much I feel prayed up. I just feel um, encouraged and equipped to face the week. And we just couldn't do that without this life group. It's incredible. Yeah, thank you, guys. Let me ask you one final question. So we know there's some folks that are not able or they're not in a life group or some form of community at all. So what do you say to someone that's not connected at all and they're, they're really trying to do this by themselves? What do you say to that person? I would just encourage each and every one of you to give a life group a chance. Um, I would come and talk to one of the pastors here and just ask them about life group. We weren't meant to do this life alone. Uh, if you look throughout the Bible, you'll see from creation to Christ, the Old Testament, the New Testament, you will see that we were born and made and engineered for community. And so I would highly encourage you to live life with a group of people here at Tri-Cities that you worship every Sunday with, that you can face the week with together. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Well, folks, these are your brothers and sisters. And uh, they've taken their time and the courage to come up here. They're a life group trying to live on mission together. So would you let them know how much you appreciate them being up here this morning. All right, so we're going to end our service this way. So our team comes and begins to play. We're going to stand and sing together in just a minute.
But before that, I want to give you a chance to allow the Spirit of God to press some of these things down in your heart. So I want to ask you just to bow your head right there where you're seated for just a second. Before our team plays or before we sing in just a moment, I want to to ask you, you may be wrestling with some of these things you've heard this morning. Maybe God's spoken to your heart and you say, "I, I don't even know what my next step is in this. Maybe... For some of you, the next step is to realize I have a love problem in my heart with Jesus. I mean, I'm a believer. I know Christ. I'm a follower. Man, my heart has grown cold. I've become distracted. I'm chasing things that just don't satisfy. Listen, He knows it. He knows exactly where you are. Maybe you, the step this morning is just to repent of that and say, Lord, forgive me that I've left my first love. Maybe for you, the first step is to begin to pray for three people around you that don't know Christ. Just begin to pray for those names. That God would save them and use you to share the gospel. Maybe your next step is to find community here. A study group or a life group that you can, or both, to be be a part of that you are not in this weekly struggle alone. That you have the body of Christ around you know all that God's speaking to your heart. Some of you, it may be that you have people in your life right now, you've been working with them, praying with them, and now's the time to share the message of the gospel and call for a response. We pray for boldness every week that we'd be ready to do that. I trust the Spirit of God to continue to work in your heart even as we stand and sing in just a moment. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, lead us into mission as we adore You are our joy, Jesus. You are our life, spirit. You are our power and strength. It's in your great name we pray together this morning. Amen. I'm going to ask you, church.